0: Good morning. It uh, strikes me that what I'm going to be talking about today is extremely relevant and pertinent on a day like today. When we get to the end, that will make perfect sense. Uh, I I said earlier, when there's a lot of extras, a, a couple of things, one big particular thing that's on your radar, there's some other things that fall off your radar and then sometimes the last minute things happen, you just can 't help and then I thought about moving worship up to the youth area tonight, which again might it still might be my favorite spot on our campus. It just looks so cool and inviting, and i 'm looking forward to that. But when we get to the end it's, it strikes me that it 's pertinent to that as well, and it didn 't plan. it just kind of occurred to me as I was as we were worshiping together this morning. It has been quite some time since I have shared with you from god 's word, and so I feel like I want to be clear about one particular thing up front if you've heard me do this before today may feel a little bit different it may not i don't know but it, what i'd like to do today uh is it has a lot to do with thought processes that go on constantly in my head partly because of my job what i mean by that is by necessity i think about worship a lot right um a whole lot. And I have to come at that topic and task from different angles that, if I'm not careful, can be contradictory to one another. Right? Okay? I mean, let's see if I can explain it. On one side, one side of many, on one side, there is the practical aspect of our worship, of our corporate worship. There is the planning, there is the preparation, there is the communication, there is the execution. On another side is what we'll call the experiential the time that we meet, the space in which we meet, the environment, the atmosphere, if you will. On yet another side, and there are others, these are just three, on yet another side is the spiritual aspect of our worship the intent, the focus. The most important things. So today, you're going to hear me use a particular word a ton of times, and that word is moment. I, I went back and forth with what title to give this, and what I landed on was, and I, I use this carefully, uh, and and with a little bit of a caveat, making the most of the moment. So, first of all, I think we know, I think there's probably agreement across most of this room Worship is not about us, and we don't come to worship primarily because of what it benefits to us. We come because of Him. We're going to get a lot deeper into that. So, but you're going to hear this word moment a lot. So that we stay on track with one another, let me give some parameters for this word, okay? When we come together for worship as a body, when we gather to sing and to pray and hear the word, that is the main Emphasis of that word today. This is our moment, right? Now, the moment can be other things that we are doing for the Lord at any given time. They can be moments of service, like we had a glorious time in on Easter Sunday. Jeremy talked about that in great detail last week. And what maybe comes next for many of us. Moments like, uh, moments of mission. As in on the mission field when God works particularly intensely. Moments of, of intense experience with him such as possibly when we walk through a difficult time. And we experience his grace and his work in a deeper measure. Right? But for our time today the parameters of moment are primarily our corporate gatherings of worship. For the most part when we say the moment that's what we will have our view. Our corporate And private, and you should have private worship, by the way. But that's what we're going to have in view, the worship to our Savior and Lord. Now, let me be clear about something, and I think you know this probably about me. Placing a, I'm going to use the word healthy emphasis because you can't do what we do without placing an emphasis on the things that need to be done. So placing a healthy emphasis on the moment itself is not a bad thing necessarily. But if we place all of our weight, all of our emphasis, all of our priority, on the moment, more particularly the experience, um, I think you can get out of balance and maybe, possibly, probably miss the point of worship altogether. Because when we have a particularly great or powerful moment, we have one week worship that's just super awesome, the temptation is to ask, how do we top that next week? The next gathering has to be bigger, has to be more exciting, has to be more intense, has to be better than the last. And I hope it is easy and obvious to see that that is not healthy thinking. You just just can't sustain that bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So why am I constantly thinking about this? One, again, it's my calling, it's my job, so it's kind of always right here. But let me give you some background. Now, this is probably what's going to feel a little bit different. We're going, to, we're going to kind of hover and circle the plane a lot before we land it. So hang with me, okay? Sometime back, I found a note uh, in my journals from years ago connected with Second Chronicles. Go to Second Chronicles 5, particularly verse 14. We're actually going to start in verse 13. The last part of verse 13, 2 Chronicles 5, says this. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now the first time I journaled a note about this verse, and this is sometime years ago, I don't know when. Sometime in the last decade was this first note. I wrote a quote, and the quote from my journal was, Oh, to have a moment like that. I was wishing for that kind of experience. How can we get to that kind of place, that kind of moment where we can't even minister because God's glory and presence is too great and too thick? How awesome would that be, right? I wanted that moment. I mean, you know, I also think about New Testament moments too, just in case we're tempted to dismiss it as just an Old Testament thing. I think of Pentecost. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. I think of Peter healing the kid who fell out a window during church and died. We don't have windows in here, so we're okay. And other moments in the New Testament that are unmistakably miraculous. And I wanted that. Okay, all right. So flash forward some time and I revisited that verse. I kept, just kept coming back to it. And I, again, I don't know the timeline between because I didn't date it. This time I read with what I think was greater care the context of 2 Chronicles 5.14. Going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3. This moment, and you've got to hang with me to the end. Okay. This moment I was looking at was at the end of a very long and intensive process of Solomon's building of the temple. It even goes back to the beginning of chapter 2 where he's beginning to, uh, preparing to start the project. What we have between there and chapter 5 verse 14 is a lot of activity. Building, preparing, purposing furnishing, the final act of bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. There was a huge amount of work that led up to this moment of supernatural manifestation of the Lord's presence. So at that point, I'd written another note and question. Let me finish the question and hang on because there's yet another time coming that will be very important. So at that moment, I'd written another note and question, and it went something like this. We all, most of us, I think, we all want that moment. We want that experience, the supernatural experience to God, but... Are we willing to put in the work that brings the moment? And I was like, ouch, am I? Now, flash forward again sometime to the most recent time I visited this text and I reread my old notes. I read the text again and something just didn't feel right. It was something out of balance. And I began to think in regards to the moment, that moment, the moment of worship about two things. First, I came to understand that that moment there in Scripture, that moment in that place for those people, is not formulaic. I have to be very careful to make things formulaic in the Christian life. What I mean is, there is no worship equation that universally applicable says, if we do A and B and C, then God will manifest himself as X and Y and Z, except The gospel. The gospel always works the same way. He is holy. We are not. We realize we're sinner and separated. But Christ came in our place. We repent and believe and we are saved. Uh, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. You will be saved. Right? What happened in 2 Chronicles here. Was specific to that people. In that moment. In that context. It was not meant to be a prescriptive example for us. We know that because the rest of scripture is full of various ways in which God responds to his people differently or maybe more importantly seems not to respond at all when they seem to have fulfilled all of the conditions. Our experience tells us the same thing. God does not always do something tangible in response to our people and our worship of him. Second, I had a theological realization that my previous interpretation of of that particular moment as prescriptive, applicable example for us, put the responsibility for, maybe more specifically, gave the credit for that moment on the priest, to the priests and the people of Israel instead of God. That kind of thinking makes God's action, his sovereign involvement in our lives, dependent on us instead of him. Listen, God will do what God will do. God will do what God will do. And God ordains the means by which he will do what he will do. And our lives and circumstances are those means. So when we believe and we work and we pray and we serve and even suffer and even prepare for worship... We know God is directing all those things for our good and for his ultimate glory. However, at no time does God say, "Well, I was going to show up and do this today, but they didn't do that, so I can't." We don't catch God off guard like that. Romans 9:15 and 16 says for he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion." So then it depends on so that it not depends on human will or exertion, but on God parentheses alone who has mercy. So all of that to say that I came to a different question, a different thinking about that moment in 2 Chronicles and my desire for that kind of experience. And the question was this, something like this. I want, we want, we would like to experience that kind of moment, supernatural moment. It may come, it may not, but we'd like it. I mean, clearly, right, just like in Second Chronicles, there's much we do in following Christ and in worshiping Him and even preparing for corporate worship together and maybe hopefully for your private worship. There's a lot of preparation that went into the Easter Sunday day of service. A lot of preparation that went into that one, right? But am I willing to work and wait and continue to do all those things, giving all that I have in worship and service and faith even if that moment never manifestly comes to me? Am I going to worship whether God responds with a cloud or a miracle or a manifestation or none of the above? What if my worship with him is just his word? That stopped me in my tracks. I had to settle in there for a bit because, again, my job is literally to prepare and lead and execute collectively our weekly moment. But when the moment and the things that make it happen, we'll use the word logistically there, become preeminent. When they become the preeminent concern and in my formerly erroneous thinking dependent on me and us... Not only do I miss the true worship of my Savior and potentially hinder that of others, I can and probably am very easily in sin. The sins of pride, the sins of anger, the sins of disobedience, the sin of idolatry. We'll flesh that out a little bit. I'll share more about that in my own heart. But for now, I will stand here and confess to you, this has happened to me more than I would like to admit. Very recently, in fact, it's a constant struggle. It's probably the reason this, I mean, I didn't write this this morning. (laughs) When I get my worship completely, primarily, preeminently focused on the moment, on the experience and then I mess up a line in a song, or something technical doesn't go right, or any number of other things, my worship all too often stops. And I confess, I have been angry and frustrated, and at times shut down and go on autopilot. And that's sin. Now by the grace of, By the grace of God, every time I can remember that happening, which again is far too many times, more times than I would like to admit. Almost every time I can remember that happening, someone has come up to me to comment about about how good things were that day. About how powerful the music was. About how they sensed God's presence. How strong the message was, the service was, the worship was. And that's how I continue to know, by the way, that whatever happens, whatever good happens here is not me. It's all Him. For which I'm I'm so beyond grateful. But for me, on those days, I have placed my emphasis in the wrong place and missed out. In short, I sin. Because my worship in that moment has become about me and the moment and ceased to be about the giver of the moment. So... Now what was I supposed to do with this moment in 2 Chronicles that God had clearly had me revisit and clearly had something to teach me about my faith, particularly my worship, even my job? And What do I do with that? Now I do not remember. I have no memory and I've searched. I can't find how these two texts connected. I can't remember how that happened. But I got my answer in Hebrews 9. That's where we're going. Next. Hebrews 9. And the answer is an answer that is so simple and it is gloriously significant. Let's read this one verse together and then we'll pray and then we'll unpack and look at some more, in a little bit more maybe overview fashion than I've done in the past. But we'll do so because I have to get to the application. Because the application is just right, right in my heart. Hebrews 9, one verse, verse 28. So Christ... Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. God, thank you, Father, for your word, in particular the ways that by your Spirit it it tears us and heals us and remakes us. Especially in those moments, Lord, where by your spirit you pierce a part of our life where there is sin, where there is selfishness, where there is something that should not be. And you, by your spirit, replace it with something that should be. Do that again this morning in my own heart. By your word. And in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hebrews 9.28. This. This was the crux of my answer. In this verse is the key to being present in this moment of worship, whatever that looks like, because corporate worship here doesn't look like it does across town, much less like it does across the country, much less like it does across the globe, much less like it does in other cultures and ethnic contexts, right? So whatever it looks like, this is the key to being present in that moment of worship with a right perspective and worship. You see, the key, and we'll use this phrase again, even the title, use it, use it very carefully and a little bit loosely. I hope that makes sense by the time we wrap up. The key to getting the most out of the moment, this moment, is to not focus on this moment. Now again, this is really difficult for me. Because, like I said, my job is literally to make the moment happen, logistically speaking, to, uh, to affect our corporate gathering moment. And you may or may not know this, many of you do, there is a very long list of things that have to happen for our moments, particularly Sunday morning moments, to go the way they do each week. This morning you saw one that I let slip, because the guy who normally takes care of that is not here this morning. But they are worth it. They are important, they matter, but they are not ultimate, okay? They are not preeminent, and that's where my error, my error, begins to be clear to me. It is an error that I am particularly wired to commit. I have a tendency to make things that are not of ultimate importance of ultimate importance, What I should be striving for every step of the way in planning and preparation and presentation is not this moment. It's two moments that we see in this verse. We're going to call those moments the cross and the consummation. Now, focusing on the cross is relatively easy to kind of figure out, I think. Right? I mean, we have songs about the cross. We preach about the cross. We proclaim the cross even in our ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? Preach the cross. I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. But what about consummation? It gets a little more fuzzy. What about our future? I mean, yes, heaven, yes. But that's a different arrival time for each of us. (laughs) But I mean that moment in the future. When Christ will return and make all things new and right. That can be a little bit more difficult to make tangible in terms, of, in terms of a focal point, right? I mean, we know we have what we call blessed hope in Christ, right? So, why is that a little more difficult? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, it hasn't happened yet, it's, it's not a tangible moment with a whole lot of clear explanation we can look back to and say, That I see. It's in the future. Two, there's a lot of different opinions based very much on scripture about what it will look like. What, what, what happens when it does. What events will transpire and have transpired to get us there. Here's the thing though. No matter what your eschatological view, if you belong to Christ, if you are his by repentance and faith, there will come a moment in the future when he will return gathering all of his own to himself to be with him forever. And everything, everything Everything will be made right. That, that is the consummation. And it's there. It will happen. It will happen. We sing songs about this too. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Right? Right? On that day, when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face, full of in and blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. And Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight. The clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. The trump. Will resound and the Lord will descend, even so it is well with my soul. We have songs about that too. And it helps us. It encourages us. Even though we may not know exactly what it will look like or what will happen, we got a lot of pretty good ideas, but when it, we know what it will look like when it happens. Whatever you think it's going to look like, it helps us. It encourages us. As a people, it should be part of what defines us as a people. To know that we are... To know him by faith and that we are looking to, waiting for, eagerly, and hoping for him. Matthew Henry, one of my favorite commentators who was a Puritan guy from several, couple centuries ago, wrote this. I, I love this, I love this quote. Remember, this is kind of Puritan language. Observe, he says, it is the distinguishing character of true believers that they are looking for Christ. They look to him by faith. They look for him by hope and holy desires. They look for him in every duty and in every ordinance and in every providence now. And they expect, they expect his second coming and are preparing for it. And though it will be with sudden destruction to the rest of the world who scoff at the report of it, it will be eternal salvation to those who look for it. And even if you're not sure what you think it will look like, you can look forward to it in hope and in faith. How? If it's not crystal clear? By at the same time looking back to the cross. We worship here and now between these two great eternally significant moments. So what does this have to do with my wrestling's With the passage from 2 Chronicles. Let me see if I can connect the dots. Now hang with me. Because they made sense in my head. And and I'm going to kind of take time and logic. And just kind of set it aside for a minute maybe. So hang with me. Go back to 2 Chronicles. And you see this miraculous moment that God does. right, This incredible manifestation of his presence. Given sovereignly in his wisdom and in his timing, yet apparently, by our observation, precipitated by this enormous amount of extensive preparation of the place and the people in which it happened. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but in the next chapter, chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, during Solomon's prayer of response to what just happened... We see something in verse 4 and 6 that God had something like that moment in mind long before that moment. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. And he, Solomon, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt... I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people. See, that moment, that moment was not just God responding to the people's extensive preparations for that moment. It was God fulfilling a promise to his people that reached way back further than that. And was rooted, and was rooted not in their service to him, but in his promises to them. Get that. God works in our lives, in our moments, in our victories and in our griefs, and however he chooses to work, and he always works. Whatever he does with them for our good and his glory is never rooted in or based on our obedience to him. They are always rooted in, founded upon his promises and favor and grace to us. That's how it works. Hang with me. This will hopefully make more sense if it doesn't just yet. Now go back to Hebrews 9. Go back to Hebrews 9. Maybe skim the first ten verses. Just skim it. Think with me, very briefly, about the fact that what was seen and demonstrated in the old system, the Old Testament system of sacrifice and worship and even atonement and relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament, we now know was looking forward to something better. It was incomplete. It was in a way, inadequate. It was a not-yet system. But then Christ came. Christ fulfilled all the law perfectly. Christ satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of His elect perfectly. Christ completed everything. Go to verse 11 in Hebrews 9. We're going to read a big block of text here. Starting in verse 11, Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purposes of purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established, "...for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship." Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here we see, in a partial summary, that... Here we see that what the old system did imperfectly, temporarily, and necessarily repeatedly, Christ does perfectly... Eternally and finally. Do you see it? The, the next chapter in Hebrews, in chapter 10, it says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now think back, just think back to Second Chronicles with me for a moment. This amazing moment that God did. Were he, working in and through his people both during and in preparation for that moment, was fulfilling a promise he'd made to them ages before. What Christ fulfilled at the cross was an infinitely better promise. And it wasn't just for Israel. It wasn't just looking back to God's promise. It was fulfilling God's promise and covenant, reaching all the way back to Adam and beyond. Revelation refers to Christ as the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Romans make claim that the cross was God's plan from before the beginning. Now, because the cross—I don't say this—because the cross was so much, go with me to Hebrews twenty-three. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The old system of worship and sacrifice and activity and even atonement were copies, shadows, representations of things which God had purposed. And planned to do in the future. They had to be repeated. They had to be. Spiritually and literally. They had to be purified and prepared. Over and over. Because they were copies. Representations. Foreshadowings of Christ. Now I want to be careful here. It could be said in part. That our current systems of worship. Are copies as well. As well. Our new systems, our new expressions, if you will, of worship and praise, very clear caveat, which do not include atonement for sin. That's done. They're copies as well, they're representations, not only of what is coming, consummation, looking ahead, but also crystal clearly of what has been done. When we gather and sing and pray and worship and repent and and praise and preach and respond, we are not doing so to have our sins atoned for. We are not worshiping here to have our sins forgiven. We are doing so because our sins have been atoned for in Christ. We are not doing so, listen, we are not doing so in order that we can be with God one day in heaven We are doing so because we are eagerly awaiting for him who has borne our sins and already awaits us in heaven and will come again to gather us to himself one day. We worship between two great moments in eternity, the cross and the consummation. We stand here and worship in this place and in this moment looking back to the cross, to his substitutionary death in our place that atoned for the sins of his people and his resurrection Proving his victory over sin and death and the grave. And we look forward to his return when we will see him as he is in full glory. And we will be with him forever. And all the things that are not right with this world. Sin and death and grief and loss and sickness and war and poverty and injustice. All of them will be made right. We look back and we look ahead. Standing here and now, only in the hope that Christ can offer in the gospel. And if you are here today, and you don't stand on the hope of the gospel alone, you know you're not sure, you do not know, or you know you have not been saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, alone, with no additions, because if you add anything to it, it doesn't count. If you do not stand here on the hope of the gospel alone, if you are not his, if you have not and are not repenting of sin and trusting in the gospel, that we are, that we are irreparably separated from God and under his righteous and just right wrath and judgment. But Christ came and lived a sinless life, died a sinless death and rose again over victory Uh, In victory over death so that he could offer you a way to know God in mercy and forgiveness rather than in judgment. And you, by his grace, as a gift, responded to that by turning from sin and self and trusting in Christ and his finished work at the cross. If that is not you, then these two moments don't mean for you what they mean for those who are his. For you, maybe, they're just events. Events. Warm fuzzies. They're feel-good things to mention. They're moments to clap for in a sermon. Or maybe, maybe by God's grace, they are moments of terror. Because you know you are not His. For you, today, I pray, I plead, they would compel you to do one thing. Respond to him and to the gospel in faith and repentance and be saved. For the Christian, these two moments are so much more than talking points. They are everything. Because of what he has done for us, we look forward to what we know he will do. And because of those two things... We do whatever is before us to do for him now, in the moment. I hope you see see some connection between these two passages. Do you see the connection between the moment we're in and the moments that we're in between? Now, here's here's the really weird thing. And I don't know if this will make sense to you. I said it to a couple of people along the way. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. It doesn't make sense, but it makes sense. (laughs) I mean, here we are in this moment. We have sung, we have prayed, we've rejoiced, we've repented, some of us, we are repenting, we're hearing the word, we're responding to it. Here we are in this place the way we do it at Doorsville. Now think about this moment, and this can be any corporate gathering moment. It could be any moment. It could be service or mission or whatever. Think about the moment. And again, we're going to be in that box. On the one hand, we have the what. We have the things that happen when we gather, right? We have the, the preparation, the technical, the likes, all, all the things that, that, that have to happen. In this category can also fall our preferences, our opinions, our likes, and our dislikes. On the other hand, we have the why. We have the reason we are here. We have what should be the motivation for doing what we do and even the way we do it. And again, think not just our worship services, but our serving and working and laboring for the gospel and missions and ministry, okay? Whatever we're engaged in at the moment. When you focus alone or most importantly on the what, when the what becomes your most important thing, worship in that box essentially becomes entertainment. It becomes about you and me and what we liked and didn't like that day. It becomes about what is happening now so supremely so that if nothing significant happens there is no moving music that grabbed me that day. There's no people responding at the altar. There's no emotional engagement. No miraculous manifestations. That becomes how we gauge success. Did we worship well today? Well, nothing really big happened. So I guess not. But when we focus on the why When we gather here, driven by his love for us in the gospel. When we remember his cross and death for us and we are striving to respond in thanks and praise. Whatever we're doing. When we keep in view that he is coming again for us. When we remember that only by his grace are we even here and breathing in the first place. Much less safe in his grace. When we keep those two moments and the gospel in view and focus on the why... Two things happen with the moment, with the what and the moment. When the why shapes our moment, the moment, the what, the moment, becomes less important. But at the same time, it becomes infinitely more important. On the one hand, our idols of grief, our idols of preference... And likes and different likes and comfort and style and all those things that are secondary, they begin to lose their grip. On the other hand, our time together, when we come together for worship, whether we're gathered in large number as, a cor- as our corporate expression of worship and praise and preaching or in smaller numbers as we study the word of God together or be on mission together or even our personal private worship and devotions, those things who are focused on the why, they just they take on more weight feel heavier in a good way we realize that what we're doing matters and it matters because of the gospel you follow me when the why the gospel of christ at the cross and the consummation drives and shapes our now moments the what becomes less important but the why becomes more important which makes the what more important that's still rolling around my head And this is where I live. I I constantly, many times to a fault, think and worry about the what. For me, and if we are honest, for many of you as well, no, for all of us. When that takes precedence, I'm going to speak back to myself. When that takes precedence and something doesn't go right, it shows. My team will tell you it shows. My family will tell you it shows. Even if I'm the only one to see it. When my worship can be derailed because of a failing piece of technology. Or a missed cue. Or heat that's stuck on high that I'm sweating through every layer of my clothing. I have focused on the wrong thing. I'm dwelling on the what instead of the why. Now let me be clear. Those things are important. All those details are important. And we want them to go well. I push for those things to go well. My team will tell you that. And yes, team, I'll push more. Because the more I think about them, the more important they become. The more I think about the why, the more important they become. And we're going to keep trying to get better at what we do for, for worship. It's because, but that's because those things, though they are not preeminent importance, they can help us or they can hinder us. So they matter. But when they become the paramount thing of importance, so much so that when they fail, it ruins my worship, you're doing that wrong. I'm doing that wrong. And that's not a what issue. That's a why issue. And here's where I've been stuck. This is where I've been turning and struggling and God has been tearing and ripping. I can very easily get stuck in the what, right? I mean, again, that's literally my job. So on a Sunday morning, there are too many times I can tell you that I am just completely wrecked. Because we work hard together to make sure things go well, and then maybe they don't. And if I'm my focused in the wrong place, and people say, man, worship was great today. And in my mind, I pray you never see this, but in my mind, I, okay, you say so. That's Again, that's sin, God's So here's how you can pray for me. We're fixing to get to application, which again is all, is all about me as well. Let me phrase that. It's not all about me. It's all about him, hopefully. Pray that every day, every week, preparing for our gathering, gatherings, I'm overwhelmed again by the why. I want to be undone by the gospel every day. Every moment that I look at it, I want to continue to be amazed. Pray that the what I'm working on is driven and shaped and focused on the why. So what do we do with this? And I really struggled with how to land this in application. And thought about some nifty little uh, kind of, what's the Baptist thing? Three points in a poem kind of thing. Uh, you know what? No, it's, 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 just, it's actually pretty simple, I think. Three things. One. One, number one, make sure that you are in right relationship between these two moments. Make sure you are a Christian. Make sure that when you look back to the cross and forward to the consummation, you do so as one who knows they are in Christ because of the gospel. And your response to it by his grace. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Repent and believe. Make sure you're a Christian. Make sure that you know. How do you know? How can you be sure, Dave? Well, my short response in this moment is, if if you are not sure, if you don't know, you probably know. I want to say that again so it sticks. I don't know. Then you probably know. And here's what I would plead with you to do. Come today, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus. Here's the thing, though. If you have a continuing problem with doubt and assurance of salvation, as a side note, I have a book I'd like to recommend to you. I'd like you to come see me after service today. It's a book I wish I had 10 years ago. I've already recommended it to like six people. It's called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart by J.D. Greer. And it is a fantastic book on having assurance of salvation. And how you can know that you know that you know. And be done. It's helped me so much. And I think it could help you. Number one. Make sure you're a Christian. Number two. If you're a Christian. You're his. And you you get a sense. like, Like I have through this. That you have focused on the what. And not the why. Or the what more than the why. Again. As has been hammered in me to be blunt that is sin and you need to repent. That is sin and you need to repent. It was for me and by God's grace I did and I am. You need to as well. To focus on the what supremely most importantly makes it about you and your preferences. To focus on the why Focus on the why, makes it about him, and again makes the what at the same time less and more important. Number three. If you're a Christian and you you feel the weight of this, right? You don't. If you focus on the why, you get it. You're there, and you just you feel it, and you're grateful for it. And although you realize you're not completely perfect in it, which is a good indication, by the way, that you're on the right track that you realize you're not you're not you haven't perfected it because you haven't then just stay there press in more to the why how that's actually pretty simple read the word regularly pray worship corporately and privately Follow Christ, whatever that looks like in your next step for you. Do all the things that we know we should be doing, but do them with a greater, heavier, deeper, more overwhelming appreciation for the why. Because of what He has done and what He will do. Because He came, we go. Because He gave, we give. Because He served, we serve. Because he died and lives, we live. Because he saved, we preach. Because he loves, we love. Press in to the why. As we close our time together, you, you may, for one of those reasons or another, find we're in a heavy moment. Maybe not a bad heavy. Maybe a bad heavy, and maybe a very, very good heavy. So you know what I mean by that? When grace is heavy and thick. And you're overwhelmed again. That's a good heavy. And if you're there. And if you're there in a heavy place. And it's maybe not a good heavy. Because you know you need to repent and believe and be saved. You know you're not in right relationship to Jesus. Between these two moments. You're about to have an opportunity to do just that. Brent will be down front. Some of our deacons will be down front. To help you with that. And you can come and do that. or bring your questions about it. We'll begin to help you answer your questions. If you're a believer. The Lord is convicting you about placing your focus too much on the what instead of the why of our worship and in so doing committing sin of idolatry, then you're about to have an opportunity to repent of that as well. And listen, you're not alone. This whole thing comes from God ripping at these things in me. I get it. I get it. You might hesitate. You might hold back. You might justify. Don't don't you might simply be sitting there having our heart and our eyes and our mind drawn again to the glorious gospel of christ and you are overwhelmed rightly overwhelmed again by his love and patience and grace to you here's how you respond when we sing shortly sing Worship. Worship from the why. Be overwhelmed. Press it to the why. And by focusing on these two great moments in the gospel of Christ, He will make the most of this moment. Let's pray. Father God. Jesus, again, I am undone. Christ shows his love for us in this, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That you would save a sinner like me. That you would be patient with a sinner like me. That you would continue to sanctify And forgive a sinner like me. Thank you for a better focus on the why we do what we do. When we come together. As we sing in just a moment, Lord, you know what you have purpose to do in every heart that's here. Do it. If the one is here who doubts or knows they are not in right relationship with you, may this be the day of salvation. That they would come to you and repent of sin and trust in Jesus. Lord, if we are here, we are believers, but we know we haven't got this right. We know we have put our focus in the wrong place. We know we have worshipped our preferences. Lord, by your grace, help us to repent. Lord, for those of us that you're pointing out your grace in our lives and we get it, we understand. you You help us see it that much more clearly. Lord, help us to worship you, not just here in the next five minutes as we sing together, but as we leave this place and live and work and breathe tomorrow and beyond. Let us worship together and live our lives because of you. And for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you are about to and going to do, we will give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together.